Thanks for tuning in again to Travel Transparent. This is your host, David Giuliano. Today we talk with Jeff Martin Kelly, who discusses his experience about living on a boat for two years, which is, I found, something quite rare. Jeff had a wealth of information to share, and I hope to have him on the show again as he spent a year in Nepal and the Philippines. Quite frankly, it was pretty tough to decide on what I wanted to hear about. There was numerous things I could have talked about with Jeff, but ultimately we settled on his experience on the boat. Jeff's primary mission at Seas was to hand out Christian literature, or any literature, to remote areas in the Pacific. Jeff talks about his role in the ship, what inspired him to go, the bonds he created, and how important good leadership is when a mission needs to be accomplished. Jeff is currently a doctoral student at George Fox University in Newburgh, Oregon. He joined me from his home in Lake Oswego, Oregon via FaceTime. All right, dude, we are live. So, welcome, Jeff. I don't know. Thanks, Dave. Kelly? Jeff Martin Kelly. Jeff Martin Kelly. Thanks. Um, Just for all those listeners, Jeff probably is someone I've, probably one of my best friends and someone I've known um, only for a few years, but has probably traveled more than anyone else. And I have to start. Has that always. Has that wanderlust always been something you've had or something that developed more so as you got older? Like you've always traveled a lot. Yeah, I think that came from my dad. My dad instilled that in us. When we were younger, we would always take trips um, in the summertime. He would work hard and then we'd take one week or two week trips, um, different places around the world basically that he wanted to go to. And uh, we, we would just tag along with him. And so he'd take us to Ireland or Italy or um, pack us all up in a van and drive us around out west through the Grand Canyon and stuff. And I think that's where I picked it up and where I started to learn, be exposed and um, see really cool things. And I think it, it kind of bit me back when I was six, seven, eight years old and then steamrolled or snowballed from there (laughs) so uh, there's a lot of experiences we could draw on uh but we're gonna focus today you spent correct me if i'm wrong two years on a boat i did yeah i spent a little over two years um i graduated from university in 2007 and had a political science degree which was pretty um, general basic degree and i got out of school and i you know, I started working, I worked at a bank for a little while and worked some other kind of odd jobs. And I really, was really directionless as far as where I, what I wanted to do or where I wanted to go. And um, yeah, I remember going to a party not too long after I graduated and I met this guy, his name was, um, his 
name was Randy Greeby. And he, uh, he was an interesting guy. He was living in the Bahamas at the time and he had a wife and a kid and he, um, just got off this ship and he started telling me about it. And, um, he was sailing around the world and he, you know, had his, had this ministry going on on the ship. And I thought, wow, it's really interesting. He told me all the details. And I remember I went home and I, this is like at the, yeah, yeah, 2007, 2008, where the internet wasn't as prevalent as it was now. And so I, um, jumped online and researched as much as I could about this. Ship that he was, on. was there a website? They, they had a website. Yeah. They had a real basic website and I remember going on it and, um, I actually just applied that night to it. I read a bunch about it and I just thought, you know what? I got nothing else working for me. I'll just apply to this thing and maybe they'll give me a call back. And, uh, about two weeks later, I, three weeks later, I got a call from them. They wanted, uh, they wanted to interview me and kind of tell me more about this ship. And, and so I, uh, I drove up to Atlanta to their headquarters and, um, went through like this really long interview process and, uh, in about three or four months from there, I ended up being accepted and I joined the ship uh, in 2008 in August. And what the ship was is uh, it was 94 years old and it was an old um, immigration ship that used to s- sail from Italy into uh, to Australia and used to bring passengers back in like the 50s and the 60s. And this really weird guy named uh, George Verber, this Christian guy in the in the seventies bought this ship because he wanted to smuggle Bibles into India and he kept getting caught and kept getting blackballed by land. And so he, he bought this ship and um, started sailing around the world and doing different Christian ministry with it. And, uh, and that's kind of the history of it. And so, yeah, I, I joined this ship and 350 different people from 50 countries were on it. And I, I didn't know anybody at the time. I was a brand new Christian. I was a Christian for maybe a little less than a year. I got saved my senior year of of university. And so I thought it would be really, it would be really interesting. Like what I was reading in the new Testament about like, you know, expressing my faith and growing in faith. And I used to read a lot in acts and kind of Paul's ministries. And I thought, man, this could be a really cool ministry and adventure in one something that I've been kind of looking for or that's been longing in my life. And, um, again, I didn't have a whole lot of stuff that was going on that could keep me from that. I was a single guy. I was 24, 25. Um, and so I just went for it. I really had no idea what to expect. So when you got the, all right, so you filled out the application and then you got a call. How quick did you get a call back from them? Uh, I think it was, maybe three weeks. And then when you went for the first interview, what, what were some things running through your mind? If you remember. So the organization that runs it is called operation mobilization OM. And I remember um, most of the Christians that I had met before that were really uptight and they were uh, just kind of not a lot of joy, not a lot of fun. I remember these people were really, laid back and their mantra was like, it's not wrong. It's just different. And what I think that stems. Yeah. What was something <laughs> that, was that stems from just like so many different cultures and so many different people. Oh, and, gotcha. Yeah. They just couldn't, you know, some of these cultural norms that we have our cultural rules. They just get broken wide open when you have so many people, you know, in close quarters. And so I remember 
one of the first times we were there for the interview, um, this guy just saying like, you know, my name is Dave, you know, some of my activities, man, I just love having sex with my wife. <laughs> so stuff like that, <laughs> you know, just to get a reaction. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, so these guys are really loose, and, but they love the Lord and they were, um, they were good people, but they, they just kind of were cut from a different cloth. And so that, that was attractive to me. I, I appreciated that being a surfer and being someone who has um, traveled before. I, I, I'm a little bit different than most people as far as how I see the world and how I see culture and, and, um, and politics and things like that. And so I, I gravitated towards that. That was attractive to me from the get go. What were some of the hesitations you had maybe even just driving up to Atlanta, you were living in South Florida at the time. Mm-hmm. It was. Okay. I was in South Florida. Um, so what were some of those hesitations that you had a, what, five hour car ride mm-hmm. at minimum that came into your mind, maybe on the way back, maybe on the way back was, was a little bit, you had a little bit more questions. I don't want to speak for you, you know, let you do the talking, but I think just who are these people? What am I getting myself into? There was a bit of like, kind of like the military where you just sign your life away. Like I, I just, you know, signed two years of my life away and I don't even know who these people are or what this ship is. I've never seen even a picture of the ship or they had no idea where we were going on this ship. And so there was kind of the fear of the unknown there for me where, uh, there was the adventure part, but also I hope I don't regret this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> type of fear. Yeah. But I didn't think much of it, you know, being 24 and 25, I, I didn't think, I don't know if my frontal lobe was fully developed. Then. <laughs> I didn't think through things. I just kind of went for them. Jeff is a, uh, for the listeners is a side D he's, he's completing his, his doctorate in psychology. So he's well aware of what the brain does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard you say my frontal lobe. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just learned that. Psych 101. <laughs> yeah. But one of the things I, I do remember was my, my parents dropped me off at the airport in Atlanta before I joined the ship. And uh, I, I, I didn't really, I didn't have many hesitations to doing this. And I didn't have many fears. Um, not nearly as many as I do now. And so I remember my parents just uh, dropping me off at the airport and coming inside and we're sitting at this little cafe and just thinking about um, not being, not going to see each other for two years. And they were both really crying. And I, I didn't really, I knew I was going to miss them, but I wasn't really that sad. I was more looking ahead and looking for the adventure and looking, looking forward to the excitement about it. But I remember my parents being really sad and really concerned. Yeah. Um, had to be hard for them, I'm sure. But what, so where was, you said they flew to, you flew out of Atlanta. Where was the ship docked? Ship was docked in Geelong, Australia, which is, um, on the Southern, I think it's Southeast corner. Um, and so we flew in from, from Atlanta, we joined a group of people in the Netherlands and we were there for, for two weeks. And then we all um, joined the ship uh, down in Geelong. And uh, we had this training down there, you know, like security training and stuff. And I remember I skipped one of the days and um, 
hitched a ride out to the coast and bought a surfboard down at Bell's beach. And I'd surfed there for a couple of days. Um, and I kept that board and I ended up bringing that board on the ship with me. And I'll never forget coming on board and everyone has their luggage and their pillows and stuff. And I just had this like canvas bag and you know, this old surfboard and people's faces were like, who is this? Who brought this board on? What, what are they thinking? This is a missionary ship. Why are they bringing a surfboard? But I'm really glad I did because yeah. we, you know, we went through Southeast Asia and I, I got to surf a bunch. You know, we had a few days off a week and I was always looking for people to go surf and drive me around and uh, it was fun. Were you able to find guys to go surf with fairly easily? Or was I did. Mission? I, I, I hooked up with this uh, doctor who's a heart surgeon. He was on the ship and he didn't surf. But he had this incredible camera and he was always walking around the ship taking pictures of people and I thought um, if I can get this guy to take pictures of me they'll probably turn out pretty well and he's got a driver's license so we can take one of the ship vans um, so I made friends with him and one day we uh, I think we were in Taiwan Hualien, Taiwan and we took off at like three in the morning with one of the vans and we caught a really good typhoon swell and got some good pictures and it was a good memory from the trip did you see that I don't know if you saw it. There was a, a video a while back of a guy who was surfing in Taiwan and the police took his board and took a hacksaw uh, to it and like <laughs> this triangle out of the, from the, right on the rail. So, you know, some people would probably say it was a China board. I don't know, but it was, they cut this triangle section out of the rail. So it had, the, it was this nine foot long board with just a right angle triangle completely cut out of it because he was surfing during a typhoon. And I, what I heard in Taiwan is they're pretty prickly about ocean safety. Yeah. They look at things totally different. That doesn't surprise me. I, I met a guy when when the ship was there, he just came on board the ship. He's an American guy named Javi. And uh, we end up, taken three or four days and going around surfing all around Taiwan. But one of the things he said was just, uh, they look at it totally different. I mean, it's like all about safety and people don't really swim or surf there. And so they shut the beaches down and, uh, they don't let you surf when there's really good waves. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to attach this, uh, this video. The guy, the guy's so pissed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you said there was a little bit of security training. What did you have to do to get ready I mean, you, you know, growing up, I guess, South Florida, you experienced the boat a little bit. Would I ship this size? Was there training you had to go through? You know, what did that mm-hmm. look like? You know, and living on, yeah. you know, I'm, like you said, you said it was kind of like joining the military. So what was boot camp like in some ways? Yeah, um, there's a lot of training. I, I think a lot of the training was boring. I don't know if I paid attention to much. <laughs> But we were getting like big swimming pools and, um, you know, throw life vests on. And, you know, what would you do if you're drowning in this situation? And what would you do, you know, throw a lifeboat in there? But I remember on the ship itself, every Wednesday morning, we'd have like lifeboat muster drills with the whole ship. And they would take like four or five hours. Um, And usually when we were out at, at sea during our voyages, we would do... Uh, different lifeboats where we would just anchor the ship in the middle of the South Pacific and drop a bunch of lifeboats and just go paddle around or if they had motors on them, just go motor around and 
I think that's like net, you know, international maritime law, but there was a lot of training. Uh, there was a lot of rules, but I don't think I followed many of them. When I was on. <laughs> Did you see a purpose for them at the time or was it simply? You, yeah, I you think so. You have, alone. you know, they had so many people, they had 350 people from 50 countries. And so, they had a lot of people on there that were from landlocked countries that had never seen the ocean or um, couldn't swim. And so I, I saw the validity to, to the drills and, but we, we did them so much uh, that we, I felt pretty prepared and, and coming from South Florida and being a surfer, I could be very comfortable around the ocean. Was there anything about the ocean being out really in the middle of it that was, eye-opening or humbling yeah i really enjoyed the voyages we had a voyage when i first joined that we went around the great bite of australia along the southern coast and i want to say the swells we, we we spoke in meters so i think it was 10 12 meter high swells and everybody was you know belted into their bunks and yeah a bunch of stuff was flying around we have some good videos on youtube of just these waves crashing over the deck and um yeah it was really it was a wild kind of kind of ride around there i'm not sure if the if the captain or the first mate knew just what was going to happen because they didn't have a whole lot of digital stuff on board the ship they had a lot of good charts and good maps but uh, that was a wild one. After that, I think a lot of them were pretty mellow and, and actually really beautiful to take your dinner and go out on different decks and, and enjoy um, enjoy your food or even sleep outside. We did that a bunch of times because it would just get so hot in our cabins and they didn't have AC. And so we would just string up hammocks or, or just take our mattresses out and, and sleep underneath the stars. Did you get seasick at all? Especially the you first know, couple... Days. I didn't. No, I, I never I never really did. And I think I attribute that just to being a surfer and being comfortable in the water and on some really rough days, you know, just going with it. But I, I saw so many people, even my bunk mates, because I was in a little room with, you know, four bunks in the room and you know, just guys waking up and throwing up right over the side of the bunk or uh, you know, projectile vomiting while they're eating. <laughs> yeah. yeah it was it was a real thing i mean people people would get seasick before we even left the port that's how psychological it was oh my gosh yeah so it's smooth waters and mm-hmm. they're getting sick did how did people get over it what were some things they did or how long did it take for them you know generally speaking i, I guess in asking this question i kind of want to preface it and say if someone's going on a boat and maybe they are landlocked you know, what are some things they can do that you saw that seemed to work for people to get over that seasickness? Um, yeah, there was like these prescription patches that people would put on. And I think that worked the best as far as what I what I heard from people. My wife, Maddie, actually uses them when she flies or when she travels. And those are kind of the best. I think the bracelets work pretty well, too. Yeah, it's funny. Going thrown back to episode one. Talked about this and those bracelets. I feel like look cool, but I don't know if they really work. <laughs> I think a lot of it is psychological, uh, but 
I think those patches, they, they release the medication as they go. And those, those seemed to work the best uh, for people that were on the ship. As I remember, how long would it take them to get their sea legs? Uh, some people never, I think the people that really got it bad, they never really, that I saw over the two years, they never really Ugh. got a handle on it. And so it was, it was really a dread for them whenever we would go out to sea or go on our voyages. They really, they knew what was coming kind of thing and they psyched themselves up and you just wouldn't see them for seven days or something like that whenever we were out to sea. <laughs> um, did you ever have any fears about the boat sinking? It's like maybe during that big storm or yeah yeah i was kind of amazed at how much a, a ship can take when it's out at sea I don't, I don't think i ever put through like all the way to the end to my fear of the ship might sink um but i remember just being you know being up 25 feet in the air and then coming down and seeing all this water come over the deck and soaking everybody um and I just remember being amazed at how much the ship can take. Like this ship was built two years after the Titanic and it's still seaworthy, yeah. uh, quote unquote. And we're still out in the middle of the South Pacific. You know, this was amazing that they, that they could build this with rivets and it's still chugging along. Did it have, do you know if it had the same problem that the Titanic did where it didn't have those self-contained enclosures? Oh, yeah, I don't think we had any of those. <laughs> but the good thing is we didn't have any icebergs where we were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just just reggae, just reggae sharks and dolphins. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so talk about what, what were some you know that's that's a really old ship. What were some of the quirks of the boat that you know, did you guys have a nickname for it or was there like, what were some of the quirks you just had to deal with on a ship that old or this ship in particular? You know, I worked in the deck department and so I was kind of responsible for the maintenance on the outside of the ship. And one of the jobs that we had to do, and I don't know if everybody has to do this on ships, but we had to go down into like the very bottom of the ship through these really small openings and we had to wear all these coveralls and glasses and, and, and uh, eye protection and, and, and ear protection. And we had to go down into these small little like water tanks and we had to chip away the rust. They would empty out all the water tanks and then we'd have to go in there and chip away all the rust and repaint it. And it was completely pitch dark. And so there'd be like 30 of us down in there um, for, you know, all day. We would do those, we would do those jobs for like a week at a time all day. And, I think that was one of the harder, the harder jobs, but I, I never found that out. Like do other ships, I don't think other people have to do that on any other ship. Like I don't think anybody has that job. That must've just been because the ship was so old. Or it, there was so much rust on that ship. Um, I think it's pretty tough. Just, like, you know, you think about all the bridges, you know, the, like really old bridges in the country. They're, I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but. Uh, I, I don't know how to answer your question, but is there is there people on those bridges that are just constantly yeah. hammering away rust all There's, day, all the time, and they have to re you know repaint it all the time. You you must uh -huh. never have gotten stuck on a bridge when you were here, where they were just repainting it nonstop. No, no, I, I, I that was such a you know that job on there was just such a, a mindless just you just kind of veg out. And some some ways I really enjoyed it, but. 
but man, we sweated so much. And I remember taking a bunch of salt tablets. They always gave us these salt tablets. And like a month after that job, I had this huge kidney stone. Uh, why do they give you a salt tablet? Yeah, why they give you that? Just because we were sweating so much in those tanks uh, okay. and there's no air circulation. So a lot of stuff I look back on, I think, man, this was so dangerous for people. But we were so young. You know, the majority of the people on that ship were 18, 19 years old. And so they just they just, you know, did these things. Yeah. What, what were, uh, I guess the, what was going back to your job? Essentially what was your job? Like what was the goal of the ship? Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? Like what was the, you guys were at sale for two years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the ship would go around to different, the ship would go around to different ports and uh, they had a lineup team that would live, in the ports ahead of time and they would line up, you know, different work that needed to be done by the crew when we would come in. So the ship would come into ports and we would all get off and work in the community through, you know, either evangelism or doing like um, physical work for churches or schools. And and then the people would come from the community onto our ship and we had 10,000 different titles of books on the ship. So it was a floating bookstore. And, uh, and people would come on and, and they would buy literature and they would take a tour of the ship. And it was a Christian ministry. And so the, the whole point of it was really evangelism, you know, get, get to some of these far reach places and, and talk to some of these people who, you know, don't have Amazon and don't have Barnes and Nobles and um, allow them to buy some literature and, and all different kinds of books, not just Christian books, but, but medical books and, and cooking books and, and things like that. And, uh, and then we would go and do work um, within the community there. And then my, my job on the ship, I was in the deck department, like I said, but I started in the deck department, then I became a carpenter, and then I was a bosun. So I was in charge of, of 60 people, kind of managing all the daily tasks and, and giving some of those safety trainings that I, <laughs> that I skipped out on in my early days. <laughs> was it hard to get people to attend those when you didn't take it seriously initially? Yeah, I think so. And, and the language barrier, right? So you have so many yeah. different people that are speaking different languages and um, and just coming from different cultures. And so you have different leadership styles and, you know, you have to approach the Koreans this way and you have to give orders to the Germans this way and you have to, you know, talk to, it was really a great, great That's learning really experience cool. for me, how to manage people, how to, how to interact with people. It's just different types of people too. Were, yeah, yeah. Was there a group of, you know, and, group of people that were easier to work with coming from the u.s i was that maybe didn't speak english um i I found like the germans and this is all generalized yeah sure just my own experience but i found the germans really love to work and they they love they thought things through like really logically and and critically and um they were they worked really hard and really smart and um that was easier to work with coming from, from an American background, uh, less emotional and more just give me my tasks, give me my to-do list and let me, yeah, let me very go get it. Low context culture. Sure. Mm-hmm. What, what role? So I guess the, this would be a, maybe a complex question. Do you feel like you were successful in that mission? Go around, give people books. Do you, do you feel like you, looking back on that made a significant impact or do you feel like maybe you made an impact at, you know, at a micro level, but at the macro level, 
not so much. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think about that a lot. Yeah, I, I, I do. I think our, our mission was, was to, to encourage the church and, and by the church, I mean the, the big C church, like all Christians. And I think a lot of the places that we went to, I'm thinking like Sihanoukville, Cambodia and East Timor, like Timor Leste. I mean, these are places that have very few Christians and very few opportunities to be encouraged or, or even to fellowship with Christians. And so I think in, in those places, yeah, I felt very, I felt like we did a, a good job of just coming in and, you know, spending two or three weeks and um, getting some really practical needs met for people. And then also um, spending good time, you know, the, the body of Christ is all these different races and all these different cultures. And it was a really cool picture to see that. Um, but I think, you know, I think there were a lot of ways that we didn't meet, um, didn't meet needs, you know, in some of those places, as far as if you do evangelism, who's the one who's, who's backing up that, um, that seed that was planted and who's the one that's you know, watering that seed. And so I think in our best, best efforts, we were, you know, we were helping and encouraging the local church. Um, and that's kind of what I like to think about it. Can maybe back up a little bit. Why would maybe a Christian in East Timor need to be, what do you mean by encouragement and why would they need that? Yeah. I, one of the most common things that would happen to me when I was on the ship is I would always get invited over to people's houses. They always wanted to invite us over. They always wanted to cook for us or give us gifts. And I never really understood that at the time. I kind of felt like it was like a celebrity thing. Like, if you were on the ship, you were kind of like this celebrity, but I don't think that's really what it was. Now, now that I think about it further, I, I think it was more of a, a bond. Like yeah. here's here, here I am living in this Muslim country or in this atheist or Buddhist country, whatever it is. And here comes these people from all over the world who have the same religion as me, who have this bond, you know, we have this bond that goes beyond uh, language or culture or what we eat. Um, and they, they really wanted to either share their country or share their culture or just um, have us over and, and, and learn more about who we are or what we share in common. And I think that was really neat of, of the two years that I was there really, you know, got to share who I was and who, where I've come from. And then also learn about all these different cultures and learn about who these people really were and what we have in common, you know, and, and in the body of Christ. Yeah, so it was almost a way for them to have a deeper connection with you than their surrounding neighborhood in some ways that because they don't get that opportunity. Yeah, I think so. Jesus. Yeah, I think that, that they felt probably more um, comfortable with us than their own people that had a different religion or different view. You know, we have a similar worldview because of that unity with Christ. Sure. Um, how much of a role did the captain play in achieving that mission? Or is he primarily yeah, on our ship? Like get the boat from place point A to point B. Yeah. With any ship, you need a captain in order to, 
to uh, to steer it. I think you don't need a deckhand and you don't need somebody in the kitchen, but um, there was a need for a captain and everybody on our ship was volunteers. I don't know if I said that earlier, but yes. all 350 people volunteered. And so we would cycle through captains as they would come on for, you know, six months or a year or two years. And when I first joined, there was a captain by the name of Ashley McDonald from Australia. And he's just like this big guy. He was kind of like type A and he, you know, he really was, was leading the whole crew. And I think he was on there for four or five years, but he was pretty burned out by the time I got on. And um, he, he cycled off and I probably had maybe six or seven different captains during that two years. Okay. Yeah. And so it was cool to see like the different captains coming from different countries and different cultures and their personalities and how that would change the ship. You know, we'd have uh, a captain who was really laid back and he was really fun and he wasn't really about the rules. And so the, the crew would take on that culture and then you'd have somebody who's from Holland or somewhere who was really from Germany. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> who was really all about the rules and he would crack down on certain people. And so that was neat for me to see like, you know, the ship does take on the personality of the captain and um, with it changing so much, you, you weren't quite sure what you could get away with and what you couldn't. Yeah. Did you guys have a break? Yeah, we did. We, we would have a day off each week and then. I'm sorry, um, not a break, a, a brig. Oh, a brig. Like a bridge? No, a brig is a jail that. Oh no! No, people who misbehave, like thrown <laughs> in, or um, you know, typically on, especially warships. You're right; it's where they would keep a prisoner that mm-hmm. they're transporting. So, uh, we probably should have. It's probably a good <laughs> idea in hindsight. <laughs> it was probably some room that maybe if I don't know if it was anyone ever quarantined for malaria or some tropical born illness. No, not that I'm aware of. That would, no. that would be another uh, use of a break. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting to see how much an organization can take on the personality of a leader. And mm-hmm. I was listening the other day, and you know, it's why we all long for good leaders, you know, because it really does affect us a lot. Um, yeah. What was it like living in really close quarters, you know, four bunkmates? What did you guys do to pass the time? Um, you know, who were some of the people you met that you just, you know, had a great time with and, uh, you know, <laughs> made the time go by fairly quickly? Yeah, I had kind of a small circle. I mean, every six months the crew would, would rotate. So if we're all on there for two years, we all have a two-year commitment. Every six months, you know, it would kind of – a quarter of the people would leave and another quarter of the people would come on. And so that was an interesting dynamic as far as community goes and that it was constantly staying fresh, but then you're also losing some friends. And um, I had kind of a small circle that I ran with um, another friend of mine here from the States who I'm still close friends with a um, couple guys from the UK, um, a guy from New Zealand and a guy from India and, um, a guy from Papua New Guinea. Oh, really? So, yeah. And so we would spend our, our days off or we would go out into towns at night or um, we would go do stuff, you know, usually within that group. And the ship had like this two by two rule 
where you could never leave the ship on your own. You always had to go with somebody, which I, I think was pretty cool because it would, it would allow you to like search out on the ship, you know, different that, people who you might not be friends with, but like you just wanted to get off the ship. And yeah. so you grab some guy from South Korea or go get some noodles or something like that. Plus you couldn't go surf then if that was the case. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> neither, neither the that photographer. Yeah. Don't so. tell him that. <laughs> no. If you're listening, you could apologize right now. <laughs> if he comes across it. Um, all right. Last question. And then we'll get into our either ors. What, what would you say to someone who wants to live on a boat, wants to see the world by a boat? Um, you know, if they've always dreamed of like, Hey, I would love to sail from Island to Island or, you know, just love to do a cruise or what would you say to them to be aware of or to consider or to be careful not to miss. Does that make sense? Like, you know, like sometimes people on their wedding day, for example, you'll say like, well, don't, don't forget to take a seat and take it in. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Like what's some, what's something like that you would say to someone who's maybe wants to see the world from the view of the water. Yeah. I, I would encourage people to do it. Um, you know, on our ship, there were people all different ages. There was this guy, Gary Bardo, who was in his seventies. And that's what he did after he retired. And I thought, always thought that was really cool. Um, people who think outside the box. And I, I feel like there's always going to be something in your life that's, you know, in the way of traveling or um, you could do instead, or maybe, you know, you'll lose, and, you know, you, you won't have that opportunity after if you, if you did go travel, but I've never really, um, yeah, I've never really missed any of the things that, that I gave up in order to go travel. So I, I would encourage people to go, to go do it. If there's something on your heart that, you know, you're really interested in doing, but it seems a little weird or counterculture or people that you, you respect maybe are telling you not to do it, but you're passionate about it. I I would say go for it. And, um, you know, one of the things I just come to realize is that there's not a whole lot of time on this earth for us. And if there's things that we feel like we should be doing or we really want to do and, you know, they're not wrong and they're not sins. then I would, I would encourage people to just go for it. Yeah. And then lastly, before we capped off, your boat ended up, I know we've had this conversation, but did you make it the two years because something happened to your boat and maybe you want to fill us in on what happened? Yeah. Yeah. The ship's no longer sailing. Uh, in I think 2010, we were in Singapore and we were ready to go to the Middle East, uh, to a bunch of closed countries. And for some reason they were going to let us in. And, uh, we just had this real quick maritime um, certificate that we needed to get. And they came on board and they did an inspection and they said, Whoa, this ship is way too old. It can't be sailing. The steel is, is not, you know, who enforces not healthy. That? Is that just an insurance company or like, like who enforces that? That's international maritime law. So, you know, but all these big be, ships. Like who like does UN enforce that? Does the host country enforce that? Like Singapore in that case? Like, I think so. Yeah. I think when you go into dry dock at Singapore, they have these inspectors that are inspecting all different parts of your boat and that they're responsible if they let ships leave the port that are unsafe. Um, And that was like a a normal thing that we would do every year, go into dry dock and 
get these inspections and for some reason they let it pass. I think <clears throat> because the ship was doing such good things and they had such a good name, a lot of, a lot of people just turned the other way. And, um, and so they said, yeah, we're not going to sail anymore. The ship can't leave Singapore. Um, and uh, a lot of people were <laughs> pretty bent out of shape about that. Um, I ended up going to Nepal for, uh, for a, a little over a year from there. And so that was a whole nother adventure, but yeah, yeah, the ship is still there. Some, some uh, businessman bought it and he's turned it into a hotel. So if you're in the Singapore area and you want to look at the Dulas uh, museum hotel, uh, you might be able to do that. Maybe you can find that, uh, Jeffy's room with the, with the, with the season. Yeah, I was down in the first, I was down in the first hold one Oh one. I think <laughs> the name of my room. <laughs> Bunch of bed bugs in there. Such good dude. We could go on and on, but I know we're running out of time. Um, so let me do this. I always do this with, with my guests. Um, there's kind of some either ors here that I'll kind of give you some good things and some bad things. All right. Okay. Um, all right. So would you rather, if you're traveling, would you rather be off the grid or, you know, think like full off feral off the grid or living a life of luxury? Uh, I feel like I've already lived off the grid um, in a lot of ways. I'll go with off the grid. I think there's, there's some resourcefulness and some um, adventure there that uh, is worth more to me, more valuable than, than a luxury. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, upgrades worth it or nah? In other words, upgrading a flight, upgrade hotel, upgrade, you know, a surfboard worth it or nah? Probably not. I don't think <laughs> I've upgraded anything <laughs> in, uh, in my life. Maybe just, you know, upgrade your wife's wedding ring. It's probably the best thing to upgrade. Yeah. Uh, aisle or window on the plane? A window. Definitely. Uh, right to sleep. Screaming baby or someone with their bare feet right next to you? Like their feet, you know, resting on your chair on the plane. The uh, I'll take the screaming baby. <laughs> um, who's harder to deal with the TSA or the check-in agent flying again? Ooh. Probably TSA, man. I don't think the requirements are very high to be a TSA worker. <laughs> um, all right. These, these are a couple good things. Uh, would you rather have, you had to pick between a place with good people or good scenery? Mm. I'd probably say good people. That's pretty common. Good yeah. food or good activities. Does that make sense? Yeah, good good activities. Um, a good flight getting there, or think really horrible flight, or good weather. Good weather. Yeah. And then this last one. Um, this might change from time to time, but think maybe the trip you did, you know, the boat was would summarize a good heart. Like it's it's a trip that's good for your soul and a good you know better mm-hmm. you as a person or a trip that's really fun, you know, that's good pleasure. Does that make sense? Like good pleasure. Yeah. I always call this question the good pleasure or good heart trip for your, for your next one, your next trip, wherever it may be. Oh, well, I'm flying to Maui tomorrow. 
but that's probably going to be good pleasure. So I'll, I'll stick with that one. But I think long-term, you know, you got to have something that's meaningful and, and something that's, you know, more than just yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, Jeff, thanks for coming on. Travel. Thanks for having me. And, uh, maybe we could have you on some other time and talk about one of those. Paul. Yeah. Or, uh, be great. The Bradas when you're in Maui. That'd be awesome. Thanks. Thanks, buddy. Alright, dude. Uh wraps up episode number five of travel transparent hopefully on season two we can have jeff back to talk about some of their experiences he briefly touched upon i really enjoyed jeff's perspective of the bond he shared with fellow christians they had never met you have to ask yourself what makes that bond stronger than language culture race national identity or something else what makes it different think about it This is Dave Giuliano signing off for Travel Transparent. Hope to see you again soon.